Hi, my name is Hauke Hillebrand. I'm really excited to speak at EAGX Asia Pacific today about global cooperation, especially because the Asia Pacific countries are so important for global cooperation to be successful. Um, consider, for instance, population. This is a population density map, and I find this map fascinating uh, for various reasons. Um, when I saw it the first, uh, a few years ago for the first time, I was quite surprised, and uh, perhaps that's uh, that's because I live, and we all live in a very Eurocentric culture, unfortunately. Um, because what this map shows is, uh, amongst many things, there are actually not that many people living in the West. Very roughly, uh, there are only about 1 billion people living in the Americas, half a billion in uh, North America and half a billion in South America. And there are only a billion people living in uh, Europe or on the continent of Europe, if you round very generously. And uh, there are now more than a billion people living on the continent of Africa. And this is also where most of the population growth will happen in the next 30 years. Um, there will probably be another billion people uh, on the continent of Africa. But what is most striking is uh, when you look at this map that most people live in Asia Pacific countries, um, especially in China and India, which have populations of more than 1 billion. And uh, this manifests uh, in the world economy. World GDP is currently at around uh, $100 trillion per year, the majority of which, 60%, is uh, China, the US, and the EU, with about 20 trillion, 20% each. And then there's India at around 10 trillion uh, or 10%. But this will change very soon. In just uh, 30 years, India and China are projected to make up about 20% uh, of the global economy each. And the EU and the US share will decline to only 10% each. So the world is changing quite significantly and global cooperation will become increasingly important, especially amongst those big four, China, India, the EU and the United States. So how can we have better and more global cooperation? Well, one crucial policy tool are international agreements or treaties between two or more countries. We have very many of these agreements today, um, more than 400, more than 500 um, agreements on the environment, like the Paris Agreement to prevent climate change. And then we have even more agreements on trade, uh, like the RCEP, which was just signed this week. Uh, between Asian Pacific countries. This is now the world's biggest free trade deal. But I want to focus today on a very special type of agreement uh, where countries agree to spend a fixed percentage of their GDP on global public goods, like the agreement of some countries to spend 0.7% of GDP on aid. Um, what are public goods? Public goods are social or collective goods that you cannot easily exclude others from, like clean air. Also, if you consume the good, uh, the public good, it does not affect me consuming it uh, or my enjoyment of consuming it, as is the case with broadcast TV or um, when you create new knowledge by doing research, uh, I can consume this knowledge and um, others can too. Uh, more technically, public goods have zero marginal cost. And conversely, um, global public bads uh, affect everyone, like climate change or global pandemics. Pandemics know no borders, as we uh, have learned recently.
So today I will review uh, these international agreements to spend a fixed percentage of GDP on things like aid, the military, research, climate change, biosecurity, global governance, etc., and argue that they are particularly interesting and important and that they touch on many global priorities um, that are also often discussed in the effective altruism community. And I'll highlight three really consequential properties that these sort of agreements have. Uh, the first is they're large in scale. The second is uh, they solve public good problems, uh, such as the free rider problem. And uh, thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, um, the coupling with growth or GDP uh, affects existential risks. I'll close by making the case that we should advocate uh, for countries to agree to all spend 1% of GDP on global risk reduction. So let's just jump right into an example of such an agreement to make things a bit more concrete. In the 1970s, a group of rich countries agreed to spend 0.7% of GDP on aid uh, for poorer countries. And this 0.7% figure is largely arbitrary and based on uh, what was politically doable in the 70s and also on some very outdated economic growth models. Um, but the key point here is that uh, it is still a substantial fraction of GDP that locks in a very steady and significant amount of funding. Uh, and uh, global aid spending is now at $150 billion a year. And much of uh, the aid budget can be used very flexibly to finance a range of altruistic projects. Um, the aid budget is, for instance, used to um, improve economic growth um, by providing loans to build things like infrastructure, roads, ports, and so on. And uh, some aid is also spent on research grants in um, advanced economies. Uh, so aid funds, for instance, agricultural research to improve crop yields or uh, development economics research and so on. And um, perhaps most prominently, aid is used to improve global health. Uh, it has funded 2 billion bed nets. Um, and um, it has also funded uh, many vaccination campaigns and other health interventions that have eradicated diseases such as polio and saved millions of lives. Mm, it can also be used to improve uh, global biosecurity and pandemic preparedness. For instance, countries can decide to give part of the aid budget to uh, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, uh, which has funded the COVID vaccine. But less than 1% of aid is currently spent on pandemic preparedness. And you might argue, maybe we should uh, spend more or we should have spent more. So um, the first property of, of these international agreements um, is that they're large scale. 150 billion is, is a lot of money, uh, especially when it comes in every year. And this is because if many countries agree to spend a fixed percentage of GDP on, on aid or the military, then this adds up uh, to many billions every year. And so uh, these agreements score very highly on uh, the scale criteria of uh, prioritization frameworks, like those used in the effective altruism community. And um, I would argue they're enormously important to engage with. So property number two that these international agreements have is uh, they improve cooperation uh, in public good games. Um, if your country only has 5% of the world population, um, if you live in the US, for instance, then um, your citizens only get 5% of the benefits from investing in global public goods, such as preventing climate change. And so uh, your government will underinvest by a factor of 20. So this suggests that uh, global public goods are undersupplied, underinvested in, 
and neglected by all countries. Without cooperation, in the absence of cooperation, it's better for any one country to free ride on the efforts of others. Uh, for instance, if China funds a lot of research to find a cure for cancer, then other countries can just uh, free ride on uh, China's efforts. But if all countries can agree to cooperate and every country spends their fair share uh, on biomedical research or climate change or biosecurity, uh, then perhaps we could solve of, uh, some of the world's uh, biggest problems. Because uh, the world has a lot of uh, problems and, and many things are um, underfunded. For instance, biosecurity uh, is very neglected. Um, in 2016, uh, a commission on uh, global health risk estimated that a mere 4.5 billion extra would address the most urgent weaknesses in global health security and prepare us for pandemics. Uh, and in 2019, uh, one peer-reviewed study warned about uh, bad coronaviruses from China. Uh, yet the World Health Organization's budget is only about $2 billion per year. Um, in comparison, New York City's biggest hospital uh, has a budget of $8 billion. Um, but that hospital really just has to ensure the health of um, the citizens of New York and not the whole world. Um, so you could argue that the World Health Organization is massively underfunded and we should fund it more. Maybe if uh, all countries had uh, pulled together their resources, humanity could have prevented the current pandemic uh, for just a small fraction of the humanitarian and economic cost of uh, COVID-19. And similarly, um, the Biological Weapons Convention um, has just four employees and only a $1.4 million budget. Uh, this is smaller than the average McDonald's, and uh, we should probably fund a bit more. The good news is that these agreements have some, these international agreements to spend part of, uh, of GDP on global public goods have some uh, nice game theoretical features um, that increase cooperation, even if countries are purely self-interested. Um, so one feature is that they allow uh, rewards and punishments. Uh, countries can reward and punish each other for defecting or cooperating. For instance, uh, the U.S. has uh, recently often criticized Germany for free riding on uh, defense spending um, by not spending 2% uh, of GDP on the military, as is agreed uh, amongst NATO uh, partners. And Germany then shot back by accusing the U.S. of free riding on uh, the aid target because they don't uh, spend 0.7% uh, on aid. Uh, the U.S. has now threatened to pull out um, American troops from Germany, which are economically important for Germany to retaliate. This is not ideal, of course, but um, you can see how uh, countries can reward each other uh, and punish each other for um, uh, playing by the rules and like providing public goods. And this is also because uh, in game theoretical terms, what, what, what countries uh, do is they play many rounds of these public good games. Um, and because they are iterated, uh, you can you can check every year um, whether um, countries have uh, reciprocated and contributed their fair share, uh, or if they have defected and started free riding. Um, so over time, countries can then build up a reputation for cooperation. Um, for instance, the UK has enshrined in law that uh, they will always spend 0.7 percent of GDP on aid, and you can also do uh, a slow ramp up of spending. Uh, and target a certain amount uh, at a certain year. For instance, um, 
the NATO agreement is that uh, spending on defense will be ramped up um, to 2% by 2024. And this is to see whether others will reciprocate and start with an uh, amount uh, where the stakes are low. And this makes it more politically tractable. And uh, you can improve transparency uh, and, and see what other countries by, are doing by uh, verifying things through uh, multilateral organizations like the OECD, uh, which monitors uh, aid spending, for instance, and establishes common rules on what counts as aid spending. And uh, so we do see quite a bit of international cooperation. Um, the EU, for instance, is a great example. Um, EU membership fees are 0.7% of GDP. And um, the EU has also agreed um, to uh, spend 3.5% of GDP on research by 2025. Um, the, the property number three, um, perhaps the most uh, interesting uh, property, is that uh, these agreements are coupled uh, with GDP and that might affect existential risks. When we pack the aid or the military budget to GDP and then the, we grow the economy, which society optimizes for often, then we automatically increase uh, these budgets in lockstep. And this creates some interesting dynamics uh, that are very relevant to differential technological development. Um, this principle uh, posits that society should retard the development of dangerous and harmful technologies, especially those that uh, raise the level of existential risk and accelerate the development of beneficial technologies, especially those that reduce existential risks posed by nature or by other technologies. So uh, consider, for instance, the, the NATO 2% target. Um, national defense is a textbook public good. And... Uh, it can be an international public good even when allied countries cooperate and combine forces to share the burden of military spending. But um, this agreement might also be a large existential risk factor, perhaps the largest. Um, why? Uh, for three reasons. Uh, one is that it can create arms races. Um, China has now also uh, started to uh, target, uh, to spend um to about 2% of their GDP on the military. And um, this is now, China's uh, military spending is now uh, roughly equivalent to about 75% of that of the US. The second reason for why uh, the NATO um, target might increase existential risks is that while um, it's nuclear weapons spending, um, well, only 7% of the US defense budget is spent on nuclear weapons, um, because defense spending is so large, especially in the U.S., uh, the U.S. will uh, probably spend about uh, $1.7 trillion on uh, new nuclear weapons in the coming years. And the third reason is that um, uh, the NATO target actually uh, includes uh, some agreement to spend 20% of this 2% target on major equipment, which includes related R&D. So we do spend, and we're uh, committed to spending, uh, much more to create new military technology, and uh, that might be dangerous. For instance, the U.S. Department of Defense aims to spend more than twice uh, the amount of money um, as Apple, Google, and Intel combined on R&D. And uh, the Defense Department of the U.S. also has given um, U.S. AI companies uh, large contracts uh, worth more than $200 billion since 2015. So um, 
maybe military spending does lead to deterrence and less war historically, but given the dangers, we might uh, want to reconsider this agreement. Put simply, the worry is that this target locks us into a situation where we spend more and more on nuclear weapons and uh, create new weapons, perhaps, by spending uh, more and more on military R&D. And this might also create arms races. So, um, more generally, in the absence of uh, increased spending to prevent existential risks, uh, economic growth increases existential risks. Um, if we if we don't do anything about climate change and just grow our economies, uh, then uh, the planet will get very hot indeed. Um, and if we don't do anything about um, ensuring that um, uh, the planet uh, prepares for advances in synthetic biology, then uh, if we could just grow our economies, there might be dangers and risks from emerging technologies. Um, growth, however, might also increase the amount of spending that we uh, commit to safety. Um, but this can and must not necessarily increase with GDP. If it does, then maybe growth will decrease existential risk. Um, so what I propose is that we spend uh, and we, we uh, advocate for spending uh, 1% for global risk reduction, and we get all countries to um, commit to an international agreement to do so. Uh, this might be a very tractable policy to lobby for, as there's now a window of opportunity due to the pandemic and renewed interest in climate change. For instance, a group of emerging economy has recently called for wealthy countries to spend 1% of GDP to prevent climate change. Once uh, we have such an agreement in place, uh, we would lock in long-term global public goods, a large consistent funding stream to reduce global catastrophic risks and improve global governments and cooperation. And this would benefit future generations and it might stabilize our, what Nick Bostrom calls, vulnerable world. Um, for instance, if we had an agreement in place to spend part of GDP to prevent climate change, we, could, we would have um, sustainable growth and we could just focus on uh, growing the economy. So yeah, if we had the right international agreements in place, um, like uh, such an agreement to spend an adequate amount uh, of our GDP to reduce uh, existential risks from emerging technologies, then we could safely optimize again to grow uh, our economies um, as fast as we wanted. So um, yes, I'm, I'm working on this topic. Um, and uh, if you would like to uh, collaborate, uh, please get in touch. Thank you very much. Thank you for the presentation, Hauke. If anyone wants to take a closer look at Hauke's write-up related to this presentation, including the citations, click on the link on Swapcard to view it on the EA forum. Now let's jump into the questions. Um, Wayne's asking, how can agreements be credibly enforced? Can we ensure that countries would want to follow through with the rewards or punishments? Um, I think he's referring to secondary free rider problem. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's an excellent question. Um, I think um, this is like uh, an outstanding uh, question that that requires more research. But there are definitely ways um, to uh, get people and incentivize uh, incentivize countries and and policymakers to contribute to. Um, uh, these international agreements are generally like public goods, um, yeah, uh, like funding the WHO, for instance. And uh, ironically, perhaps uh, the the previous um, U.S. administration, the Trump administration, was always uh, very 
um, persistent in uh, uh, countries paying their fair share, and they use the the mechanism, the enforcement or the the, the punishment of like um, of trades, um, trying to to give countries that that would uh, fairly contribute to NATO spending, say. Uh, uh, taking aside whether that is good or bad, uh, to have uh, preferential access to U.S. markets via um, better trade deals. Um, so that is one way um, to use trade uh, and uh, and perhaps even sanctions, um, uh, economic sanctions or otherwise to, to uh, get people to um, to cooperate. But that's like a very heavy-handed policy tool and like maybe more of a last resort sort of thing. Um but yeah, there, there are definitely other ways to to get countries, um, yeah, uh, maybe through subsidies or uh, aid uh, payments as well. Um, uh, these are all all ways uh, to 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 get um, countries to uh, cooperate more. Yeah. Thanks. Um, so next question is from Hayden. For at least some major risks, such as nuclear war, great power conflict, it seems that those risks could, could be mitigated by countries spending less rather than more. Could it potentially be more tractable to push for agreements among states to reduce their military spending in tandem? Similar mechanism, but agreeing to spend less rather than more. Um, he gave another example, governments spending their research funds on the riskier parts of biotechnology. Yes, absolutely. This is a great question. Um, and it's true. Um, so in, in the accompanying piece, which is now uh, uh, live, or at least a, a rough draft of it is uh, live on, on the effect of altruism, I sort of uh, say that uh, perhaps some spending, in particular military spending, is perhaps um, could, be, could be construed more uh, better as uh, anti-safety spending. So the more uh, you have, the more military spending you have, and the more... Uh, spending you have on military R&D, um, the more you increase X risk. And so uh, that's why we should reduce rather than increase uh, military spending. Um, it could still be true that we would want more cooperation so that we have like more uh, um, uh, distributed military spending. Uh, and in absolute terms, we have like uh, lower levels of, of military spending. But uh, the absolute amount of um, uh, money that we spend on nuclear weapons will probably positively correlate um, uh, at a certain point, um, past a certain point, with um, with uh, increased existential risk. But perhaps the perhaps the relationship is quite um, quite nonlinear, where too few weapons will uh, put you in a position where. Um, there's not enough deterrence, and then there's like an optimal amount uh, where where countries are less least likely to go to war, um, and then past that point, perhaps more nuclear weapons will uh, or or more spending on weapons and and new military technology will increase X risk again. Um, so, but I haven't. Uh, this is just like an intuitive um, sort of like um, answer to this. I I haven't. Uh, properly interrogated the empirical literature, and I, I'd, I'd love to see more people thinking about this um, for the reason that that these these agreements are so large and, and important. Um, when it comes to research spending, that's also like a really interesting question. For instance, the um, EU agreement to spend uh, 3.5 percent on 
research by 2024. Um, that, that is uh, the knee-jerk reaction uh, to a first approximation should be that this is like a, a great global public good or at least international public good where uh, countries pool their resources to do more biomedical research uh, and find, find a cure for cancer, which will benefit everyone. There's no point in like going alone as a small country. But, uh, of course, um, with advances in, say, uh, synthetic biology, uh, there we might also be pushing uh, so-called dual-use research um, that can also be used for, um, can also increase uh, risks uh, from emerging technology. Um, and uh, so, so it becomes, uh, yeah, we don't quite know uh, what these agreements and in what direction they push, whether um, they increase X risk or decrease X risk. And we should we should uh, think about this more and harder uh, again because, um, yeah, these agreements like are pretty much like the largest policy lever uh, on on research and differential technological development more generally that you can push um, that that I've come across so far. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, there's one more question on um, if just China, India, and other nearby Asian countries hold 50% of the global population, wouldn't they as a group have sufficient incentive to fund the at least the most cost-effective um, global public goods since they internalize 50% um, of the, the effects of all humanity? Should we focus on getting agreements signed among just these countries or less directly? Is it then overwhelmingly important to encourage China and India to have better relations as they may be key to such agreements succeeding? Yeah, I think I think there's something uh, that, that's a great question. And I think there's really uh, something to that point. Um, one thing to keep in mind is so, so generally uh, you would assume that um, a country such as China that like makes up uh, a, a sixth of uh, the global population or like a, a seventh um, uh, will have more of an incentive uh, to, to spend on public goods. And, and perhaps we do see that, um, that um, relative to uh, their GDP per capita, so their, their general level of, of wealth, uh, China does spend now a lot of uh, money on, on on basic biomedical research that benefits everyone. There are more and more uh, papers, scientific papers, um, and technologies coming out of uh, China, which is uh, uh, a boost to the global economy and like creates lots of innovation. Um, um, one one thing is that uh, of course, and 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 getting India and China like the most populous uh, countries to cooperate uh, might be really good. Um, this is traded off at this stage uh, that um, by by the um, by the fact that they don't have as, as much money as uh, uh, on a per capita basis as uh, Western countries. So the U.S. still has the biggest um, federal budget on science spending, so they they spend more uh, at this stage uh, on on global public goods. Um, uh, but yeah, it's still important to get even these big countries uh, to cooperate because even China does not internalize all the benefits and can uh, free ride or, or will have some incentives to free ride on the efforts of others. But uh, the general point that the bigger a country, the more likely they should be to spend on global public goods uh, still stands, all else being equal. Yeah. Thanks so much, Hauke. Um, mm -hmm. There are still good questions, but we have run out of time. So... Thank you very much for joining us and for sharing with us at the global um, 
Asia Pacific um, today. Thanks everyone for joining as well. Stay well. Thank you.